and the pastors must be effective as teachers. You know, sometimes we may may wonder, does being able to teach mean that they need to have some extraordinary gifting? No, <laughs> they don't need to compete with the best preachers in the world on podcasts or television, but they need to be effective in that local church. And that might be very different in a, a large established church in a big city as opposed to a more rural setting or a church planting setting, what it means to be effective in that context. Because if the pastors and elders together in their teaching are not effective in teaching sound doctrine and protecting their people from false doctrine, then it's only a matter of time until the wolves carry the day. The pastor elders must be effective. You need to see your context, know your context, and pray for and search for and raise up and find pastor teachers who will be effective in that context. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 247. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. The voice you just heard is our guest for this week, Pastor Dr. David Mathis. And you are in for a treat. David and I have a delightful and encouraging and informative conversation about what it means to be able to teach. Uh, this is one of Paul's qualifications or virtues that he says is important for elders, pastors, leaders. We're supposed to be able to teach. What exactly does that mean? How much of that is a divine gift from above? And then how much of that desires or demands cultivation from us here below. So this is a great conversation. I love doing a deep dive on one particular concept with somebody who has been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, David Mathis taught a class on eldership for 10 consecutive years at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He recently published a book called Workers for Your Joy on what it means to be a qualified elder. And so he is exactly the kind of guy that you want to learn what it means to be able to teach from. So I'm going to get out of your way and let you listen to this conversation with David Mathis. All right. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I am thrilled to be speaking with uh, Pastor Dr. David Mathis. Uh, good morning. Welcome. Hey, Mike. So great to be talking to you about such an important subject, too. Yes. Yes. So we're going to be referencing and talking about uh, the book that came out uh, recently, Workers for Your Joy, which is largely kind of an exposition on <clears throat> what Paul talks about the elder qualifications. We're going to hone in maybe on one of those qualifications. But before we hear about other people's teaching and preaching. I'm always curious to hear about about yours. Uh, uh, David, what was the first time that you ever handled God's word in public? What was your first sermon? You know, I've, I've racked my brain for this. I, I think that the first one I can remember was in high school. I was part of a large church in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and we would do this summer mission trip where we went to the hollers of Kentucky and did Bible schools for kids. And so as part of that, we would go to smaller local churches in the Spartanburg, South Carolina area. And I think I went to a little tiny church of just a few dozen members, and we had a youth Sunday. Now, some teenager on the guitar, others singing. 
And they said, Mathis, aspiring dentist with no desire to preach, you're supposed to give the message. <laughs> and so as best as I can remember, I got up there and I talked for a few minutes about Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I, I'm not sure that I was, I'm not totally sure I was regenerate at that point. Oh, <laughs> looking okay. back on it, it was, it was a very truth oriented, duty driven, perhaps sermon sure. uh, that I went through a very significant renovation of soul a few years later while at college where uh, I first began to taste the light and depths of joy in God that were very different than probably what I experienced at the time. And very, very, very oriented on truth and duty and became more oriented on delight. Um, but that was, that was my first shot at preaching and I had no interest in preaching at that point. Yeah. And how, how did it, go i suppose uh it's it's complicated and then even bringing in the reality of of you may have not been regenerate so that's a complicated thing but stepping down from that pulpit how did you feel i don't remember much i i you're, you're I suspect, too young to not remember <laughs> i suspect it would have it would have been very boring to the hearers. Okay. Um, I, I I think I was probably focused mainly on saying true things yeah. and had no sense for connecting it to my own heart, you know, not to mention the hearts of, of those who were there. So it, it was probably pretty short. It probably wasn't all that compelling <laughs> to regenerate or unregenerate people. And uh, I, I don't remember anything embarrassing about it or, you know, I, I think I was just, I was willing to do public speaking at that age, though I didn't aspire to be a preacher. <laughs> that that yeah. would come later on. And yeah, I do dentistry remember- Dentistry was in your future. That's right. My dad's a dentist. He just retired and I was planning to follow him right, into dental school until I started taking some Greek classes at Furman and uh, started loving to teach the Bible and, and redirected- that path. But I I do remember several firsts. And maybe the one thing to say about it is, even though there might have been a, a particular first sermon in the context of worship in a local church, I had a lot of firsts through the ministry of campus outreach, college ministry that I was involved with, first message as a team leader at a summer project, or a first message at a Christmas conference, or a first message at a weekly meeting. And I think it's really important for young preachers to, uh, aspiring preachers, to get a lot of different at-bats it could be with five-year-old Sunday school. It could be with youth Sunday school. It could be any any short little time where you are able to stand up in front of people, whether it's microphone or not, in the position of a teacher and open God's word and feed souls with the truth and beauty and glory of God's word. Those all contribute over time to God making us the kind of preachers he intends for us to be. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some vocabulary that previous guests on this show have spoken about where they, they say that for the young or new or for the aspiring preacher to, to never say no, that if, if there is an opportunity, again, whether it's at the, the five-year-olds or the nursing home, or you just, you just say yes. And as you get those different, I guess, at bats, as you would say that the competency, the confidence, it, it does grow. And then, then the time does come maybe when you reach an older age, when you have to have to start saying no, when to take every single opportunity um, as, as life gets busier or responsibilities mount, maybe isn't the best. 
but for the young and for the new one, encouraging people just to, to say yes as often as you can, as often as you can responsibly you can. You know, the uh, one thing that maybe doesn't serve us well in some Christian circles, I mean, ones I've been in, sometimes there's a, a very static concept of gifting where it's like, well, this guy is gifted to preach or he's gifted as a communicator or his person's not gifted. And in reality, God gives those gifts often, not in a moment, but through a lot of work and cultivating and developing and through you know dozens and hundreds of at-bats. You know, those, those gifts grow and improve. He means for us to grow those gifts. So there are, there are many guys out there who may not feel gifted yeah. in some static sense as a preacher. And I want to encourage those guys, work on that. It is something that can be worked on and grown and developed over time. Yeah, it's a, a gift from above. And then we could also say it's cultivated here here below. And it's something that actually can we can improve at. And so so maybe the next kind of question I'd like to ask you is like, so David, how have you grown since then? That's that's very vague. Maybe a specific question. You mentioned your Joshua 24 passage was very kind of duty and truth oriented. If you were scheduled to preach at Cities Church coming up and you were assigned the passage of Joshua 24. How do you think you would teach it differently now than you did back then? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I didn't send I didn't send you that one in advance. Sorry. <laughs> I can try to lay on the fly. I, I, I think today I would be much more eager to understand the context. I, I think at that time, when we had a plaque on our wall at my house, you know, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house will serve the Lord. So that, that may have been the inspiration for that sermon. Is oh, what am I going to preach on? Oh, there's a plaque on the wall. That's <laughs> for me and my house will serve the Lord. And I, I do think probably if I went back to Joshua 24, studied that passage, got ready to feed God's people with it in the context of worship, I probably would make much of verse 15. But I hope that I would be better at positioning verse 15 in the context of Joshua 24. And Joshua 24 in the context of the old covenant in the context of redemptive history, be able to make more natural connections to what God has done for us instead of all of the accent being on the human will. I suspect that I was just working the will. I was just working the will. Choose with me, choose to do this for the Lord rather than putting that within the framework of the blessed God, the happy God who works for us and and what God has given to us in the person of his son, in the empowerment of his spirit, how God is over and sovereign in and empowers the human will. So there's probably a lot more I could say about the power and beauty and glory of God in which to then present to the hearers, choose this day whom you will serve. Yeah. 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 It's it. The commands still are there. The invitation is still there but you're just couching it in this bigger, broader story. Whereas, yeah, I mean, if, if I would have preached this, let's say 20 years ago, this, you know, what do you got to do? Choose. What day you got to choose? This day. Who are you going to choose? The Lord. All right, that's it. <laughs> you can choose or not. And, and yeah, there's, there's more to say than, than merely or only that. Not less, but certainly more. Mm-hmm. Any other, like, I, I, that was a very specific question, but any broader ideas of, of growth? Anything you used to do that you stopped doing? or anything that you consciously decided to add to your teaching and preaching? My instinct, um, I guess, growing up and just being around youth ministry meetings, what I picked up in the drift from my own pastor growing up, as well as being involved with the Ministry of Campus Outreach while in college, was preaching from an outline. 
And that that corresponded more, at least in those settings, with less preparation, more focus on, you know, delivery in the moment than preparing what to deliver in the moment. And so when I came to Minneapolis and studied preaching under John Piper, that was very different. John manuscripts. That was the first time I had learned under someone who's who manuscripted. And yet you do not get the impression from listening to John Piper preach that he's just reading a manuscript. Mm -hmm. And so, so I found over time, it's more work to do the manuscript, finish the sentences, finish the paragraphs, but then not just read it. You need to preach it. <laughs> the sermon uh, should not merely be a, a performing of the manuscript. You know, the manuscript is preparation. My sermons are largely my manuscript, but I, I don't want it to be exactly that. I, I want to be in the moment with the people over the word, open to the Spirit's fresh guidance and wisdom. There are times where I look up, I deliver the paragraph to the people, and I have an insight in saying it that wasn't there in the preparation. So I, I think that's a big change from just regular instincts growing up on public speaking, speaking from an outline, which has some good aspects to it. Namely, you don't just look down the whole time. You know, there, I'm not just reading. So I get the next point in the outline and then I'm delivering it yeah. fresh and real to those people in that moment. So I want to preserve that in preaching. And I think, at least for me, doing it makes me do the extra work to manuscript it. And over the years, it is sure nice to be able to go back to something old and to read my complete sentences and under, and understand now what I was thinking then rather than just going back to an outline. When I find an old outline, sometimes I'm not sure what I was thinking. You know, I had something in my head that I never got on paper and I have forgotten it over time. But when complete sentences are there, it's at least nice for going back to it later. Yeah, like like the archaeologist finds a skeleton and then has to piece together all of this and then imagine what this person was like versus, well, the illustration falls apart. But <laughs> there we go. Right. I, I started strong and then I and then I petered out. <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing about complete sentences and paragraphs <laughs> yes. for that purpose. Yeah. Yes, I just demonstrated it right right there. So I'd love to to speak about yeah workers for your joy and I yeah from what I gather this this came out of like a, a decades worth of teaching on eldership at Bethlehem College and Seminary is that is that correct? That's right in in 2012 as Bethlehem College and Seminary what used to be called the Bethlehem Institute which is a two year apprenticeship program I went through that in 2003 to 2005. And uh, it was such a great program, and we added faculty and able to, to grow that into a college and seminary. And so uh, early on, uh, Tom Steller, who was dean at the time, let me know he needed me to, to, to facilitate a class. And I was, uh, was very excited to hear that. And I thought, oh, what might this, this grand topic be that they want me to cover? You know, systematic theology one, or teach Christology, or maybe it could be a study in the epistle to the Hebrews, you know, thinking of all my, my favorite interests. And uh, Tom's like, we need you to do the eldership course. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's not glorious. You know, mm. it's so functional. But that that was the need. And that, that's one of the points of the book, too, is how much God means for our ministries to be based on meeting real life needs. You know, it's, it's not self-actualizations. 
where I have a dream that I want to foist onto the church and onto the world. Christian ministry is meeting real objective needs in a particular context. And so that's how I got started on this topic of eldership. I never would have chosen eldership, but eldership chose me. Our Bethlehem College Seminary chose me for eldership. <laughs> the Lord works and, in mysterious ways, doesn't he? <laughs> right. And so uh, one one thing I, I learned over time that I loved about this course is it was, I mean, it was under the topic of practical theology, and it really was a chance to talk to talk brass tacks with these guys. They had been through systematic theology classes, church history classes, uh, so many different formal areas of study that are typical to seminaries. But the eldership class was really a place to kind of talk with whatever issues were live. So early in the day, we spent a lot of time talking about multi-site and video preaching, which were, you know, interesting topics at the time. And uh, the eldership class, I'd, I would try to supplement a text with various articles. And over time, I would want to address something that maybe I couldn't find the right article on or wanted to do it in a slightly different way. And so I began writing articles that would be part of the class. Here and there, there might be a message or or something connected to a key text uh, that relates to leadership in the New Testament. And so one piece at a time, it kind of came together over the years and the most significant discovery along the way was that the elder qualifications are not just prerequisites for the work. They are the stuff of the daily work. The way I came across this, this insight is as I thought through, I said, I want to you know, teach these seminary guys what's relevant in on-the-ground pastoral ministry, you know, in an eldership class. Uh, what are the key practical issues we need to discuss? And as I made a list of all the key practical issues, it was amazing that they all corresponded with one or two or multiple qualifications, you know, qu qualifications, you know, virtues mm. of the pastor elders. And I realized that Paul really means it with these traits. And these are not just hoops to jump through. Like these are the kind of men the elders need to be to do the work they're called to do as a team of teachers, sober-minded, leading in the local church. And so that was the, the key point where we then restructured the course to kind of work through the qualifications, trying to move beyond just a, a bare understanding of the qualification to see that trait in its biblical scope and then make connections practically to the life of daily minister, daily ministry for pastors and elders. I love what you just mentioned, speaking about these as like elder or pastoral virtues, uh, more than if I could say the word mere qualifications, right. like it's not just this is what you need to get in the door, but this is the 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 bread and butter or the exhaling and inhaling of elder or pastoral ministry, a virtue, what a, what a great turn of phrase or what a great ex, you know explanation of these. But you know, it's for if you if you when you spread out throughout the New Testament, you see so I mean just about all of these are expected of Christians sure. elsewhere. You know? Yeah. So sober-minded, <laughs> not a drunkard, you know, self-controlled, you know, above reproach, you know. So it other than apt to teach, which we can get to that great. We're gonna get there. Yes, cost, we're gonna get there. <laughs> other than the the pastors, the the centrality of teaching for pastors, and then the, you know, not a recent convert. Uh, so you, if somebody just came to faith, you can't expect them to be not a recent convert. However, Paul connects that to 
arrogance, to humility. So you might it may not become swelled up with pride. So if you, that's just a humility qualification. So And there is a sense, too, that all Christians are to be teachers. Hebrews 5 says you ought to be teachers by now. We teach each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In Colossians chapter 3, women teach, older women teach younger women in Titus 2. So there is some sense in which Christians teach each other. And what's remarkable about that eldership list is these are virtues that are expected of Christians all over, but in the pastor elders, they need to be operative and visible so that the pastor elders can be examples to the flock of healthy Christianity. There needs to be no glaring absence of these of this composite of Christian virtues. And so I, I, I do think virtues is a, a helpful term, traits, virtues, for getting at what we're looking for in our leaders. Yeah. Well, you mentioned didacticus, and so let's let's go there. So that is, you mentioned, yeah, one of the, in connection with the not being a recent convert, but that's a primary marker of church leadership, uh, eldership. Uh, you mentioned that it's it's also what sets apart elders and deacons in, in his writing. So what do you think he's getting at when he includes this in this list, but not the other lists? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, it's the one that stands out. Like as you read through the two lists, the the overlap uh, between the eldership overseer list in verses one to seven, one to eight, the deacon list, which follows immediately afterwards, so many virtues are overlapping in terms of sober-mindedness and those kind of things, but the teaching sticks out. And in the elder qualif- in the elder qualifications of Titus 1, Paul's list culminates in verse 9 with this qualification, that he must uh, handle the doctrine well, teach the doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it. So it all kind of culminates there. And uh, my observation is it's culminating in Titus 1, and in 1 Timothy 3, it's, it's in the very middle. Ah, center of that chiasm. Yeah, that's right. The chiasm of the 15, I think, that Paul gives there, he puts this right at the middle, I think, to signify its its centrality. But apart from that, we have so many other texts that talk about the centrality of teaching as related to Christian leadership. I mean, Paul himself in Ephesians 4.11 says that Christ gave the pastor teachers, puts it together with that little uh, construction in the Greek, or maybe the strongest one of all, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God. He could assume that their leaders spoke God's word. He could assume their leaders were teachers because that's largely what it means to be a leader in the Christian faith, which is a teaching movement. The Old Testament taught Torah, the teaching, and Jesus was the consummate teacher. And he left apostles who were teachers and who still teach us by their words. And he means for local church pastors to be teachers who teach not only their own creative or innovative ideas or things, so they don't preach themselves, they teach the apostolic word. So teaching is at the very heart of the Christian faith and at the very heart of what it means to be a leader, an officer in the lead office, the teaching office, that office of elder, overseer, pastor, in the local church. So it is very significant. Now, the one word we have there in 1 Timothy 3 is didactikos, as you meant, as you mentioned, adjective. You know, the, the, the Greek noun is didache for teaching. So what does it mean that this adjective version of didache, didactikos, it, it, it's tricky because I don't know that we have an exact correspondence in English. Um, 
I could make a word up. <laughs> Please do. If I, if I made one up, it would be teachative. If talkative means someone who is fond of talking, you know, uh, then teachative would be someone who's fond of teaching. They're given to teaching. They're fond of teaching. Now, to try to get at, at that, I've got three E's that help me think through dynamics that relate to being apt to teach or able to teach uh, in the local church. First is the E of equipping. You need to be trained. You know, the Christian doctrine uh, is not like conversion, where the Holy Spirit does it in a miraculous moment and opens your eyes. Uh, Christian doctrine is something in which he, he trains us. There's, there's usually a process of being equipped, whether that's a personal disciple-making context, whether that's some some formal course of study, even in an informal way in the local church, whether it's a more formal thing in a seminary. I do not think you need to be formally trained in a seminary to be a pastor elder in a local church, but I do think you need some sequence of training, some time for being equipped in sound doctrine. That would be one, the first one being equipped. The second one then being effective. Uh, that's what Paul's getting at in Titus 1.9, as he expands on this didacticos from 1 Timothy 3. I think you can see its expansion in Titus 1.9. And the pastors must be effective as teachers. You know, sometimes we may, we may, may wonder, uh, does being able to teach mean that they need to have some extraordinary gifting? Uh, no, <laughs> they don't need to compete with the best preachers in the world on podcasts or television, but they need to be effective in that local church. And that might be very different in a, a large established church in a big city, as opposed to a more rural setting or a church planting setting, what it means to be effective in that context. Because if the pastors and elders together in their teaching are not effective in teaching sound doctrine and protecting their people from false doctrine, then it's only a matter of time until the wolves carry the day. The pastor elders must be effective. You need to see your context, know your context, and pray for and search for and raise up and find pastor teachers who will be effective in that con context. So equipped, effective. The last one then is eager. And I think this is uh, what gets most close to the heart of what didactic cost means. When we say able to teach, we are not meaning able in the sense of, oh, yeah, this, this guy can teach if you put a gun to his head. Mm. No, mm. no, we're not. Sometimes I've heard that so often uh, where, you know, he's not really a teacher, but you know, he can explain something to somebody over coffee or over lunch. It's like, I hope everybody in our church can do that. But we're looking for some kind of bent, some proneness, some eagerness to teach that he wants to do it. Even if he doesn't never say no, maybe he right. typically yeah. says, yes, like I, I, I am a teacher. I want to teach. I love to teach. We're looking for a kind of eagerness. So we're looking for kind of guys who uh, are not just uh, able to teach if you put a gun to their head, but they're the kind of teachers who won't stop teaching unless you put a gun to their head. And maybe even then they won't stop teaching. <laughs> there's, there's an eagerness there. And I think one place where you see that eagerness as a kind of internal posture or almost virtue is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he's talking about the servant of the Lord, commending this to Timothy in the conflict in Ephesus, not quarrelsome, able to teach kind to all, patient 
in all things, you know, correcting opponents with gentleness. So the company that Didacticos keeps in 2 Timothy 2 is kindness, gentleness, patience. There's, a, there's an orientation on the world and on life that brings to bear a kind of patience that is demanded of a teacher. A teacher doesn't walk in on the first day of class and give the final exam. <laughs> a teacher teaches. A final exam's coming. There's an end to this. There's an end to the journey. We're trying to get our people somewhere, but we're not expecting our people to be somewhere before we've taught them. And so uh, that eagerness to teach and the kind of patience and the, the bent that would be a teacher at heart is, I think, what's being signaled by Didacticos. Wow. And, and in true preacher fashion, thank you for the three alliterated uh, points. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Uh, can I come back to the the second one, the, the middle, yes. the effective? In, in your understanding, like, what, like, what's the difference between, you mentioned, like, effective teaching, and that doesn't necessarily have to be as good as the famous celebrity preacher on the podcast or, on, you know, in the old days on the TV or the radio. Um I guess maybe the question is like, is how good is good enough? <laughs> I, I think it's got to be decided in a particular local church setting. So I, I don't think you can say that at the same time for a large established church in a city okay. versus a small church plant in a rural area. It, it's going to be different in the context. And sometimes some of the growing pains in the life of a church can be from that, that planting stage growing into the more established stage. So even as a church stays in the same location in various seasons in the life of the church, the, the demands can be greater or less. You know, what was effective uh, in planting the church may not be effective 10 years in or 20 years in. And so there may need to be a maturing of those elders. And, and that, we got categories for that, right? You know, Paul says, let your progress be made known mm. to all. Yeah, you know, our yeah. people should see that we are growing in our knowledge of the word, in our desire to preach it, in our love for them. They should see evidence of our growth over time. And so that that's fitting for pastor elders to do that. And I think one important aspect to emphasize is the team dynamic. Mm. We mm. don't have any instances in the New Test Testament of a single pastor, elder, without a team in a local church context. All of the examples we have are team context, plurality of, of pastor elders in the local church. And so uh, it doesn't all, in that kind of context, it doesn't all fall on the shoulders of one man. As a team, you know, this team needs to be effective in this context. And uh, that that is not to be decided by somebody from the outside. That's something that congregation with its leaders needs to decide and pray for and seek and, and be serious about the very centrality of teaching in the Christian faith. Yeah. Okay. And, and on the, the notion of yeah plurality, I think, I think in, in the circles that I run in and, and that you, I think there's a broad consensus that plurality of leaders is a, it's a wise and safe and new Testament principle. And even if certain churches haven't arrived at that yet, it's an aspiration uh, to yeah. to get there. Um, I'm thinking, you know, in kind of church planting context or international cross cultural plantings. And so, although there is a big emphasis or understanding or consensus almost on the on the need for plurality of leadership, like what you're saying is that that plurality of leadership should also be expressed in a plurality of of voices and preachers in the pulpit. So not just making decisions behind the scenes, but also presenting God's truth Sunday after Sunday. 
I mean, what's very clear in the New Testament is the two main tasks of the lead office, the teaching office in the local church is teaching and leading. And sometimes we say feeding and leading, leading and feeding, those rhyme. Or you could say teaching and governing. Um, those are the two main tasks, and I think it's it's a beautiful thing. It is it is a, it represents a maturing for a church to go from being governed by a single pastor to being governed by a team or led by a team. I'm a congregationalist. I don't presume all your listeners are, and so I I aspire to elder led congregationalism. There even in congreg- congregationalism is not democracy. <laughs> Write about this someday. It's, it's not democracy. It is not ruled by the people. It's ruled by the risen Christ under him, regenerate people, led on a weekend, week out basis, on a daily basis by a team of leaders in the local church. So it's it's a pastor-led, elder-led congregationalism. And um, in, in, in that context, uh, where was I going with that? I got all distracted by talking about uh, congregationalism, yeah, congregationalism gets you going. Democracy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm not a congregationalist, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. On ruling, it is a, a maturing of a church to go from a single governor yeah. to a team of governors. Right. And I think it's the maturing of a church to go from a single teacher to a team of teachers. And I know not every church is in this. I know there's an embarrassment of riches in places close to seminary. So here I am pastoring in Minneapolis, uh, not far from Bethlehem Golden Seminary, not to mention a generation down from Bethlehem Baptist Church, an embarrassment of riches of elder qualified men who are compelling teachers. And so it's it's easier work for us. And, and that would that would I would not condemn those who find themselves in a different setting. And they're in a they're in some setting where they're the sole teacher, they're the sole leader. That's not wrong to be in that setting. I do think it would be wrong to be content with that and stay there and not pray for that kind of growth and maturing. And I do think it is a maturing to have multiple leaders in governing, and then it's good for the congregation and good for the preachers and teachers, good for the pastors themselves to share the work of teaching. And that might be manifest in preaching. I would not say that the sum total of teaching in the church equals preaching. Uh, there is so much teaching to be done in the local church. We're constantly teaching. At every gathering, there's various manifestations of teaching. Preaching, then, within that broader category of teaching, is a distinct thing, a very important thing in the context of worship on a Sunday morning. I think it could be very good for a congregation to have multiple preachers, to have a team of preachers in that context. But I wouldn't say that unless there's a real aggressive sharing of the pulpit, then there's not a sharing of the teaching. You could very much, as a team of elders, share the teaching, and yet that be concentrated, for the most part, in one or two or three preachers, so to speak. Yeah, and and you've unpacked this further in a, an article on Desiring God that we'll include in the show notes if anyone is, their curiosity is piqued by this or they want to hear a more uh, fleshed out version of this. You know, this year in 2022, you know, I mapped out the preaching calendar and and made sure that at least once a month, I wasn't in the pulpit, and and not because of travel or whatever, but just being there. And then in the first half of the year, I would like you know, do Sunday school. I would do something else on that Sunday, and then then I kind of decided like, wait a minute, no, I should be I should be in the front row. I should be you know that that 
you know, I, I, I'm blessed. I'm able to, to travel a lot. I'm, I'm jet lagged right now from a recent trip to, to Idaho. Um, and, but I didn't want the impression to be like, oh, if Mike is gone or busy, then these other guys fill in for him or they're substitutes. And so even for the second half of this year, I made sure to be like, no, no, I'm going to sit in the front row with my wife and we're going to be under this. Not to say that this is like, there's an emergency in Sunday school. So that's why Mike is there. So I'm working on it. And this is providential that we're discussing this because I have to plan out next year's preaching schedule. And I might, let's see if we can increase that from once a month to, to even less. So you're having a good influence on me. That, that's so good. Uh, an old friend of mine, Larry Osborne, San Diego. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents went to that church for years. Okay. So, so Larry talks about coming back from vacation on Saturday. And he would do that in, in particular, when he had a vacation, he'd make sure to come back on Saturday to be at his church on Sunday morning and to be as as visible as he could in a holy way and not preaching. You know, it's like you're saying, on the front row, sitting under the preaching, uh, just thrilled to be under the ministry of another brother, which is great for the congregation to see that. Another thing, it's just so good for the preacher's soul. Yeah. I benefit so much from my brother's who are fellow elders through their preaching, it is a glorious thing to sit under their teaching. So we're working on Leviticus right now. Cool. <laughs> and we have we have different eyes, different backgrounds, different emphases. And I think we make each other better readers and preachers of Leviticus as we sit under each other's preaching. We kind of fill out the whole message. So I sure hope this working on a sermon now on Leviticus 21 to 22. I sure hope that sermon is going to be better, healthier, more balanced, better for my people because I have set under my brother's preach Leviticus and hopefully balanced out, shaped my view of Leviticus. That'll be more helpful uh, in that sermon. Yeah. Well, I, I was, I was planning on asking you about this because I went to the city's church website and was scrolling through the recent sermons. And I, I was to some degree surprised to not see you as prominent on, on that list. And so again, then kind of discovering even more about your, your convictions about uh, not just shared leadership, but a shared pulpit, that that really makes sense. But I, I was suspecting something uh, even before I did that additional reading. So you're practicing what you preach or you're preaching preaching according to your practices anyway. Uh, preaching uh, according to our preaching. That's, there we go. Thank you. Again, you're not jet lagged. I am. <laughs> so the alliteration <laughs> right. will be up to you. Hey, last question on this. So last question in total, actually. So I always ask this to kind of end, but um, what's something that you're trying to get better? You just mentioned that you hope that your Leviticus sermon is going to be better because of sitting under the other pastors and preachers in your church. But is there something that you hope in 2023 that you improve in? What are you working on? What's your target? So and one thing I'm constantly working on, I'm, I just turned 42. So okay. uh, I guess a couple decades here of preaching. I've never been an every Sunday preacher. Okay, I have always been part of a team. There's been you know, chances to get at bats, hundreds of them. Thank God for that in different contexts. But I, I've, I've never been an every Sunday preacher. So I very much feel like a rookie at age 42. And I think of preaching as a life skill, like singing, not like athletics where you peak in your twenties, maybe your early thirties, maybe Tom Brady still plays in his forties, but you know, athletics is early on in your adulthood. Preaching is a life skill like singing where hopefully your best singings in your fifties or sixties. 
And I listen now to John Piper at 76. And I'm like, my goodness, 70s. Maybe your best preaching is still awaits you in your 70s. So, so on a on a trajectory of a lifelong of trying to improve, three things I'm working on right now. Outline of three, right? Shorter, tighter sermons. The hardest part is cutting. Often less is more. And especially when we're when we're talking to our people who are going to get to hear us again the next Sunday, I want them to say, oh, that was delightful. I would have loved five more minutes rather than them saying, well, that was about 10 minutes too long. So I, I, I really want to push that. And that's that's the hardest part. Creating words is not difficult for me. It's not difficult for most preachers. Now, maybe in your 20s it is, but as you get older, creating words is piece of cake. The hard part is cutting them, you know, killing your darlings. That's the expression uh, in the writer's world and uh, an editorial world. So killing your darlings. Second one, not being tied to the manuscript, but being in the preaching moment. So this is just, this is a constant tension as a young preacher wanting to put in all of the due diligence and preparation, finishing my sentences, finishing my paragraphs, being prepared for that moment. But then I don't want the preaching moment just to be a performance of my manuscript, I want to be there with those people. I want to see their eyes, see their faces. I want to have the text in front of me. I want to be open to the Spirit's leading. I'm probably not going to preach something that he brings to mind or seems to bring to mind that is utterly new to me. But sometimes in the moment, I'm re- I'm going back through that truth and doctrine, and there's a connection that's made that's not totally new to me, but it's fresh in that moment. And he, I think, means that as a gift for me and a gift for the people. So I want to find that way of full preparation and then full engagement in the moment. The last one is being more concrete. Abstraction is easy for me. And it's not as easy for most hearers. (laughs) And I think often when we tell preachers, you know, to add stories and add illustrations, I think what we're really getting at there is be concrete. You know, there, there are times to be abstract glorious times to go into abstraction, make doctrinal connections, pull big pieces together. But it so helps our people if we're concrete regularly. And so I'm trying to think of ways to be concrete. And that doesn't mean adding five-minute stories. It could just be a simple, quick metaphor in a sentence that makes it more concrete. Concrete in the terms of of application or concrete as, oh, this is going to impact you with your with your employees or or coworkers. Could be concrete in terms of application, all just in, also just in terms of images, mountains, skies, sheep, you know, and not just uh, Romanized words that are conceptual, but don't conjure images in the mind. Powerful. That's mighty. Well, okay. Well, thank you so much for, for bringing us through this journey. Um, you know, so yeah, your book is available from Crossway and can be purchased, I'm sure, most places. But I just got to say, I, I love stuff like this. I love books. Like, first off, I love eldership. I just think it's great. I'm reading books on eldership uh, a lot. Our church, uh, I guess, tradition was very much kind of single pastor. And, you know, many years ago, um, convictionally felt that a plurality of elders was the way to go. And so I've just been for me personally, is reading on this all the time. And then also, I just love when there's like a, you know, a seminary professor that has been teaching on something for a a decade, and then they write about it. I I just love that because I know there's been a sharpening in your own mind. And, you know, probably to some degree, uh, even 
being sharpened by the students that have come through or the kinds of questions or the kinds of like pushback that you get that I just really hone thoughtfulness and writing. So I, I, I love this. I think all outgoing professors should, should write one last book or something because there's this clarity that comes from it. And so I appreciate that. Thanks for what you've given to the church. And I hope this serves elders and potential elders and the church worldwide. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it, brother. It's an honor to talk with you about these things. I could do this all day, but uh, not now. I'm jet lagged. I have to go curl up in bed and go to sleep. You do it. That's right. Okay. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you so much uh, to David and thanks to you for listening all the way to the end of this conversation. In the show notes, there's a link to the article that he referenced about team teaching, as well as a link to our private Facebook community. Uh, you're invited to turn this from a listening monologue experience into more of a conversational community experience in that private Facebook group. So do meet us there. We can continue the conversation. Uh, I also want to say make sure that you're subscribed so that every Tuesday this podcast automatically shows up in your phone or in your device because coming up in the next few weeks, there's a conversation with uh, Kike Torres, with Heath Hardesty. We've got a great conversation about Augustine between myself, Ian Clary, and Shane England. And then also, we have another one of our big mega compilation albums coming up. Uh, this one is about how to prepare your heart and your calendar to preach during the Christmas or Advent season. It's coming up. It's closer than you think. And we want to help you to preach as best as you can in the month of December leading up to the annual festival of the celebration of the incarnation that we know as Christmas. All right. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. God bless. God bless.